0: Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Franek Vechorka. I will be moderating the second panel of today's conference. Um, I think uh, Václav Havel would be probably disappointed in topic of our today's conversation. I mean in uh, developments of uh, democracy and freedoms across Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, Václav Havel believed in reversibility of democratic change, and he had a high expectations from young journalists born already after Soviet Union collapsed. He said, they have grown up and studied in surroundings much closer to true democratic values than the earlier generations. Important to remind that Vaclav Havel uh, was the person who invited Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, um, to Prague. Uh, This way, he demonstrated uh, that the symbol of free world now is associated with our region, I mean the region of Central and Eastern Europe. We in Belarus, I'm from Belarus, remember that Václav Havel, how much Václav Havel did for freedom of speech in our country. Uh, indeed, now a large part of post communist countries have made a step or more back from the level of liberties reached immediately after anti communist revolutions. Uh, the strongest move towards non democratic patterns is shown by Russia, where the model of imitated democracy, is replaced by typical imperial autocracy. Even Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, without any progress from his size, has lost his deserved title of the last European dictator. Uh, However, the autocratic regimes exchange experience in controlling media and using them as propaganda tools. Is Is the democratic world? in position to face this challenge and to defend freedom of media expression in this region to protect information space from anti-democratic propaganda. This is a topic for our discussion. And contributors to our panel discussion are distinguished experts on the situation of the media in Central Eastern Europe. And all of them have deep personal experience of working and studying the region. Let me introduce the panelists. This is Ms. Jill Dougherty former foreign affairs correspondent for CNN, uh, Mr. Alexander Dardelli, vice president of IREX, and uh, J.K. Chucky, uh, senior researcher for Nations of Transit in Freedom House. So we will start with a popular topic of propaganda. You know that Putin's propaganda machine effectively uses so-called uh, Western crisis of values, which we discussed in the first panel as well. Uh, in order to manifest itself as the less traditional values defender. The media space is the most important channel for promotion to this image. The penetration of Kremlin propaganda is noted in Latvia, Slovakia, Serbia, Hungary, everywhere across the Europe. So my, question, uh, my first question will be to Jill. Uh, how does Russian anti-democratic uh, propaganda use a freedom of expression in
1: democratic countries? Well, you know, I'd like to keep it um, <clears throat> very focused, I think, on when we use a very straight understanding of words. And propaganda, in this sense, I'm going to use in a very concrete fashion. I'm not going to say that it's, you know, good, bad, or indifferent because every country uses propaganda. But what I would say is our image of how propaganda is used often uh, is kind of this. Idea that men with guns go and take over studios and tell people what to say. And actually, in the modern world, in Russia right now, um, and certainly in the countries where Russian broadcasting and media are heard, sometimes in the Russian language, that's not the case. It's a softer approach, if you want to, that came up in the previous panel. Kind of a softer way of approaching this so what do i mean by soft it would be um, let's say taking over media outlets economically under the guise of saying that the previous editor was not doing a good job or was uh, misusing funds and therefore this media outlet should be run correctly And usually, of course, the person who comes in as the next editor is a person who supports the government and wants to keep it in power. I'd also say that, you know, the media propaganda I don't think should should be looked at as one kind of separate element out by itself in the way we kind of sometimes traditionally look at that. It's part of you know, economics, politics, Military strategy, and then also, um, you know, the cyber, which is part of military and political and many other things, are all worked in together. They're all part of this kind of um, nexus of communication, message, and narrative. And you know, if there's one thing that, as as I look at media, I was the Moscow bureau chief for CNN for about nine years. And I've watched you know, as carefully as I could to try to understand what's going on. Um, Russian TV right now, and in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, certainly the Baltics, where people do speak Russian, many of them, um, you can actually see direct broadcasts from Moscow. So what do you see? You do not see somebody sitting there you know, with a piece of paper reading propaganda. What you see is very entertaining. It's very, very well done. I watched it when I was in Estonia last year um, for a couple of months. I used to watch it every morning and looked forward to having my cup of coffee and watching Russian morning TV because it's, it goes down easy. It's fun. It's very well done. And Russian TV has a lot of shows that are really fun to watch. In worked into that, of course, is the news broadcast where you do get the propaganda. But sometimes that even is very entertainingly done. Example, Um, when Russia first went into Syria, much of the reporting was uh, they had obviously, and I'm speaking as a TV person, they had obviously sent very sophisticated cameras, crews, editors, shooters, and. So the reports, the early reports of the incursion of planes, Russian planes in uh, in Syria, was exciting Star Wars video. It was really, really well done. You saw the planes taking off. They had elevated cameras, so it looked like a movie. Um, and it made you feel, you know, just great that the Russian Air Force was going in there and setting things right. So I guess what I'm saying is we have to kind of, I, maybe we, have to change our understanding of how propaganda is done. It it can be entertaining. It can also be confusing. And I think we've talked about this. I'm sure we'll talk more. But it raises raises all sorts of issues that don't appear to be propaganda-based initially. Um, I, I would say one of uh, one of the points that Brian Whitmore made this morning, which I think is key, is that the faili- failures of Western democracy are exploited against Western democracy. Uh, you see this very much in RT, Russian television. You know, RT formerly Russian today, Russia Today, which broadcasts in a variety of languages in which they depict uh, citizens of the United States or the West as hapless victims of their governments, which are out not to protect them, but to put them in harm's way. And then also, I just make, I don't want to blab on here too long, but there's one other point which I think is really crucial to understand, and that is what... What is very, very effective, I think, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, is to exploit the disenchantment that people have in that region for why democracy did not work. Go back to you know two thousand and eight economic problems the it, the changing economic situation, people without jobs um, I think that that is one of the most important things, because if we go back, and this year, it's 25 years at the end of the Soviet Union, and then even before that, the fall of the wall, where people really did expect, in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and in Russia, that life would get better, and very quickly, because democracy would come, would be the end of the old structure, and we would live well. And when people don't live well, they base it very much on their daily life, not on theories, not on democracy, not in these big concepts. They base it on everyday life. And if they are not living well, they are fertile ground for another message, which says that liberal democracy doesn't work, that you need, we refer to it as illiberal democracy, but let's say a more centralized uh, vertical control Um, of society. And that is a major problem, because I know we're going to get into how do you answer this. One of the best ways I think the West can answer it is by improving life in the West and making sure that people's rights are protected. That is a real challenge.
2: If I may add something, actually. It's interesting you elaborated on the concept of propaganda. And I think we use interchangeably three words, propaganda misinformation and disinformation. And at the risk of sounding a bit academic, I think it's worth dissecting a bit these words. Because propaganda typically means purposeful dissemination of information, alignment with a certain bias. Now, that bias is clearly there in propaganda. Hypothetically, in theory, it could be correct, the bias. What we observe in the case of the Russian machine, the Russian propaganda machine, more aptly should be called disinformation, actually because it's a purposeful orchestrated dissemination of misleading, deceitful, or wrong information. What are some of its elements? First, there's always a multiplicity of sources. There's a multiplicity of views. While multiple, they are not necessarily correct. Uh, there's use of infotainment for uh, conveying strategic messages. There's Weaponization of information. And behind this, there's grand design. So I think in this case, perhaps the more correct term, and I think we should embrace this term, is uh, disinformation. Then we use misinformation a bit loosely, but that basically that's unintentional the spreading of, of wrong information. So we clearly are facing <coughs> a case of disinformation in this case, Uh, and clearly there is grand grand design and and good orchestration behind this campaign of disinformation. And I think it's important to highlight these differences because sometimes I fear that by overemphasizing propaganda, our response becomes a bit mechanical and we tend to basically fund and focus attention, good attention, on mechanisms that counter directly what should be correctly called propaganda as opposed to disinformation. Mm.
0: Uh, Yeah, actually, um, uh, we had a discussion before this uh, panel, and we have a disagreement about propaganda because, uh, as I see, Russian propaganda is a very unique phenomenon, which includes, of course, misinformation, disinformation, but also uh, very active work in uh, new media, including Russian trolls. And you know, it's not about disinformation because, as I see, as a consumer in Belarus, uh, media fulfilled infiltrated with Russian propaganda, they do not uh, disinform you. They give you so much opinions, 99% of them are uh, maybe wrong, but you just stop to think. You understand that it's a lot of garbage, it's not my Uh, It's not my idea, it's not my task to understand what is is true, what is not. And the same happens in um, Twitter, Facebook. You know, they they give a lot of messages and even part of these messages are true. But uh, you get like 200 notifications on your Twitter uh, application on iPhone. And you say, oh my god, better I will unsubscribe from from this Twitter account. But my my question is to Jakey. Uh, because you work in Freedom House, and you can analyze the whole the region. Why this Russian influence misinformation, propaganda? Why it's successful in one country, one country, and not successful in another?
3: Uh, Thank you, Franak, and uh, thank you for the Atlantic Council um, for the invitation uh, for this very important discussion. And I'm very glad that we started unpacking what propaganda means and and how it works in different countries. And I want to continue in this direction uh, and uh, what you were saying, Jill, uh, in the end. I want to continue in this direction and uh, make a general observation, taking a step back, that uh, in the risk of sounding somewhat contrarian, but I think um, often when we discuss propaganda, um, we tend to overlook the actorness of the countries uh, involved, of the countries on the receiving end of propaganda. And I do think that... uh, that that can be a problem because then we might not be able to come up with the right answers. And um, um, in Central Europe, so for example, uh, when a Central European, let's say traditionalist uh, politician makes a statement about the demise of the West, uh, we can be quite sure the next day to read articles in the media uh, about how Russia is um, using this and how it benefits Russia. And now I'm not saying that these articles are not correct, because obviously they are. Um, But I think that when we overlook the actorness of these countries, what Gio was saying, uh, we forget that there are pragmatic and political um, reasons behind uh, the way these politicians act. And we also tend to forget, or not pay enough attention, as you were saying, that there is an opportunity for Russia to insert itself uh, into the discussion, but that opportunity is there because there are problems. Uh, and unfortunately, in this case, Russia acts as an amplifier of these voices, um, whether those voices are um, euroskeptic, far-right, um, intolerant, uh, whichever, and, and that is the bigger problem. Uh, but to answer your question, um, of course, so the reasons, um, the first reason for, for the differences uh, between how, countries react and whether um, they are a good fertile ground for propaganda are historical and political. Um, so countries with a cultural proximity to, to Russia and to Slavic culture um, are obviously more susceptible to this kind of propaganda. Um, so for example, in Southern Europe, um, let's say in the Balkans, Serbia, or Bulgaria, um, the situation is very different there than in Central Europe. Um, The other factor is the presence of pro-Russian actors, uh, politicians. Uh, And in the case of Central Europe, these are often um, far-right parties, politicians. So, for example, Jobbik in Hungary, um, although now Jobbik is moderating, so I don't know what to say about that. Um, Or uh, paramilitary organizations in Slovakia, uh, fringe actors. Um, Certainly, the presence of these actors uh, help the spread of uh, propaganda. Um, but I do want to make it clear that uh, focusing on the Visegrad countries um, in the media, Russian propaganda is right now not, uh, not as, si- as significant as in other countries. Um, there is no RT, uh, no local language channels. Um, and um, there, there are a few websites uh, that peddle conspiracy theories. Um, so it works in the way of disinformation, um, that federal conspiracy theories um, share sensationalistic news items. Um, and right now that's, that's actually the biggest problem, more in uh, Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia, uh, and, but to some extent in Hungary and to a very little extent in Poland.
0: Uh, I have a question to Alexander about um, consumer, uh, consumers, yes, how, yeah. how to make uh, consumers of media information to, um, to divide you know, propaganda from uh, truthful information.
2: I'm glad you're asking these questions, actually. As it happens, my organization, IREX, is working specifically in this area. But let me take a step back. And then for about 25 years, almost three decades, we've focused almost exclusively on the supply side of information working with media organizations, working with print organizations, uh, TV associations of journalists, basically the people that produce, generate content, generate information, generate news. Uh, And the focus has been, in many cases, right. This focus was necessary, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, There was much attention paid to the legal enabling environment, actually, in terms of introducing in constitutions protections for free speech, decriminalizing, defamation, and other legal elements. But not much has been done from the angle of the consumers. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think all propaganda or misinformation or disinformation seeks to do is actually change the mind of a consumer of information. So we need to focus on the consumer. Much can be done actually to dilute disinformation, to dilute propaganda, by developing critical uh, information consumption skills. Uh, And what do we mean by that, basically? Uh, Information is a good. It is a public good, but it is not too dissimilar than other goods, including food that we consume, actually. Uh, And so by developing critical information consumption skills, we, in many ways, develop demand for better information, demand for independent media, demand for independent information, as well as strengthen the ethics of the profession and, in effect, neutralize the ultimate effect of propaganda or disinformation. Uh, We have just piloted the program in Ukraine. And you know Ukraine is pretty much a battleground for disinformation and propaganda because of the issue of Crimea and the conflict on the East. And um, we have some very interesting finds, actually. And Ukraine is somewhat atypical. It doesn't represent Central Europe or the Balkans, actually. But there are some similarities with Russia, Belarus, as well as the Caucasus. And so in Ukraine, The data is that the trust in media is very low, 35%. Uh, This is not atypical, actually. This exists here. It exists in Eastern Europe. The media consumption is very high. 73% of the people watch news every day, typically on TV. Yet only 23% of people cross-check or verify the news that they read. This is an abysmally low number, actually. So we implemented a program, which we designed with funding from Canada, and we trained uh, group of trainers that, in turn, reached 15,000 people. And basically, the training program focused on verifying sources, uh, avoiding emotional content, uh, going to multiple sources of information, uh, looking for fact-checking uh, websites or pieces of, of data, uh, going to citizen, or citizen reporters for additional information, going to investigative reporting networks for information, and developing the skills to analyze information. And only because of this intervention, we have data from Ukraine that says there was a 22% increase in those who check or cross-check the news they see or hear, 26% increase in participants' confidence in analyzing news, and 24% increase in participants' ability to distinguish trustworthy news from false news. We're talking a six-month intervention with some traumatic, actually, data. And the data covers 14 provinces regions of Ukraine. So it is not Kiev-based. It is not Eastern-based only. It's pretty much cross-country. So we can do much with consumers. This is an area for additional investment. And I think the promise of investment there is, is tremendous. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the data. But this is one area in which we need to invest. In addition to this, there is this linkage between producers of information, generators of information, including content, and civil society. This linkage hasn't been leveraged appropriately. Sometimes we conceive of media as media. This is basically the fourth estate. They produce information, content. They disseminate that content. But in effect, actually, there is an intermediary between the consumers of information and media. And typically, this is civil society. And so civil society is an enhancer of good information. quality control on information, as well as a fact-checker on information. I think more needs to be done on this linkage. And more uh, cooperation and possibilities for using civil society should be explored in terms of producing citizen reporters, uh, supporting investig- investigative uh, reporting efforts, as well as fact-checking and cross-reporting. Uh,
0: uh, but you uh, gave an example of Ukraine, where the most of TV channels are owned by oligarchs. So the question to you, uh, how, what is the impact of ownership of media, not only in Ukraine, but uh, all over uh, Central Eastern Europe, to the quality of this information and uh, uh, to influence of uh, misinformation as well? well
2: um, this is a great question, and it's also a very difficult question. Um, So this region actually is a very diverse region. So let me start by saying that. So the problems you see in Central Europe are not necessarily the problems you see in Russia, or Ukraine, or the Caucasus, or the Balkans. We're talking different cultures, uh, different historical backgrounds, different levels of economic growth, different linguistic capabilities, and the ability to be exposed to foreign languages or foreign media. So having said this, there are some common trends. And if you take a step back and look at the fall of the Berlin Wall and what happened actually. We had a, a number of mega trends in the 90s. And the, the first megatrend trend was basically the collapse of the state owned media and the privatization of media, of the media outlets. The second mega trend was basically the introduction of legal protections, typically in constitutions for free speech and the operation of free media. And the third mega trend was the transformation of the typically state-controlled TV into public broadcasting systems or reform state-controlled TVs. And then we move into the 2000s. And then we see some interesting megatrends vis-a-vis ownership. Associated with a trend of increased foreign direct investment in general, in any industry, we see increased foreign direct investment in the media, typically in Central Europe, but then it stretches out to Eastern Europe, to the Balkans, Balkans, and further out east. And then there is at least the perception that foreign ownership creates a bit of a buffer between the old institutions of control, propaganda, disinformation, and the ability to generate good content. But then we have the meltdown of 2008, and we have a collapse in the markets actually worldwide. And Central Europe and Eastern Europe is one of the regions of the world that suffered the most because of this collapse, that they had dramatic uh, drops in GDP production. And it affects the media market, clearly. It affects the advertising market, which is basically the lifeblood of media. So you have a shrinking advertising market, basically, that introduces a number of trends. Because of this shrinking advertising market and the decrease of the purchasing power, you have the foreign investors exiting Eastern Europe. We have the Swedish Bonnier Group exiting its market. We have WAZ exiting its market. We have News Corporation exiting its markets. This clearly relates to the 2008 crisis and the aftermath of that crisis. And what happens in the meantime? Well, we have a number of so-called oligarchs or minigarchs or business conglomeration that basically add media to a multiplicity of interests. And this is very interesting because these are not the traditional media owners. They own many things, from coal to agriculture to media. And typically, we see a trend that media is used as a platform for either pushing a political agenda. And clearly, sometimes the lines between these owners and politicians are very thin, if nonexistent at all. Or pushing their own business agendas. So that's a very disturbing trend. And then the shrink in advertising and the fact that now you have business owners with multiple interests controlling media basically destroys the so-called Chinese wall between editorial independence and where the money comes. So if you're a journalist working for an entity that is controlled by one of these business entities or oligarchs, then you think twice more, actually, for fear of losing your job or your revenue when you write something that is against the interest of the owner or against the interests of that business. So I think this is one of the most disturbing trends that we've seen in Eastern Europe, generally speaking. And then, in effect, what you have right now, you have dysfunctional media markets. markets We have a media failure of sorts in Eastern Europe and Central Europe. So markets have not been able to allocate resources efficiently for the production of good, reliable, quality information. It is a media market failure, actually. And what do you do with media market failures, actually? You typically intervene. We've done it here in our economy. You've done it elsewhere. And I think markets still have the best potential to allocate resources efficiently and effectively for the production of good information, but they need an intervention in this case from outside. In effect, in Eastern Europe, particularly in Russia, but so is the case in many other countries in Eastern Europe, the buffer that used to be the ownership between the government and the producers of the content, the journalist, is either non-existent or very much eroding. And so the journalists don't, don't have protection in this sense. And what we need is we need to think carefully and hard about how to create new ownership structures in Eastern Europe um, and in in Central Europe. And, And this is not applicable to the entire region. This is very difficult to do in Russia, actually. But it is possible in some other markets in Eastern Europe. And we have to do it in a number of ways. First, we have to acknowledge that the local sources of information, I think, have the highest potential for neutralizing disinformation, actually, because they come with credibility, and they come with, actually, that on-the-ground feel, actually, that cannot be generated elsewhere. That's one. Two, um, we have to look at media literacy or critical information consumption skills. And three, the new structures, the new ownership structures. Now, there was investment. There was foreign direct investment in, in ownership in Eastern Europe. And there was a perception that now the journalists were protected because the foreign owners could actually fend off whatever you know pressure was coming from the politicians or the changing governments. That was not always necessarily the case, but the perception was there. So, uh, right? C-
0: c- can I ask uh, Jill? Yes, <laughs> it's very really sure. Good introduction to the next part of the discussion. Uh, Jill, um, is there any difference, for example, um, if the TV station? is owned by Russian oligarch or Japanese uh, private company? How will it influence information, the quality of information, objectivity of the uh, content it produces?
1: Well, I mean, speaking in generalizations is very hard because I don't know who the Japanese would be. I don't know who the Russian would be. And actually, there are some outlets in Russia or right outside of Russia uh, that do a good job. But But in general, I'd say the more you have, um, as, as Alexander was just saying, do, you know, control of people who have an agenda. It Might be their own um, economic agenda. It might be their own political agenda. It might be the agenda of the ruling party or person. Uh, the more direct influence on the journalists you're going to have. And then also, in societies where there's not that much money floating around for journalists who are working, it's very difficult for them to kind of fight that uh, because they can uh, starve yeah. in trying to do the the right thing um, you know in writing whatever the truth is. so it's I, I, I think it would that's a very big generalization but the, but there's no no question in my mind that there is there can often be direct influence but you know I, I also think there is this kind of malevolent, directed journalism, and then there is what I would call like the agnostic journalism. You know, many of the people, and I know Russia best, so maybe I have to talk about that uh, most, and it's a very diverse market in Central Europe, but you know, many of the people who got into broadcasting and ownership in the early days of Russia and now continue to uh, control it come from you know, at the advertising world. They come from an area where um, they really don't have, let's call it, ideas of their own. What they are, they're, in a sense, hired guns. They know that advertising in Russia can make you a lot of money. Owning a television station can make you a lot of money. And being close to the governing people, close to the Kremlin, can also make your life pretty easy. So you tend to toe that line but do they uh can they change yes that is why you sometimes get these zigs and zags in public policy by the kremlin the kremlin does a lot of polling constant polling in fact of what russians are thinking and how the message du jour is getting out and um, witness recently what happened with turkey You know. Turkey, Russia, great friends. Then Turkey shot, sh- shoots down a Russian plane on the border with Syria. All of a sudden, they are terrible enemies. And the media switched overnight. So then Erdogan was an enemy. Now they're back to being friends again. And there's another you know, mind-swiveling, head-swiveling uh, turn. So the media can be used not because there is some underlying ideological idea it's what serves the person uh, who is in charge or the person whom they want to serve
0: Uh, Jake we have a very spectacular hot example from Hungary about the closure of the popular newspaper there Hmm. so my question to you is um, (laughs) what's wrong with Hungary you know (laughs) the member of European Union and um, how actually to stop interference of politicians to media sphere.
3: Um, So when I was preparing for this panel discussion, um, I, of course, looked at our data at Freedom House and uh, looked at the countries in comparison. And uh, I saw that, of course, the Visegrad countries, except for Hungary, they are all rated free in in our press freedom report. Uh, Hungary is partly free right now. And the Nations in Transit, the report I am working on, they are all Central European countries are doing relatively well uh, compared to, let's say, Russia. They are all in the, in the upper third of, uh, uh, of this list um, and somewhat better than the Balkans and, of course, uh, much better than, than Russia. So first I thought that uh, uh, you know, instead of zeroing in on illiberal leaders, um, maybe we should shift the discussion, shift the focus a little bit, and also talk about the enabling environment as we have done so far. Um, and then, of course, uh, Nipsova, the news of about Czech shuttering came. Um, but, but I do want to um, follow up on what Alex was saying, because I think it's important to um, be aware of, of, the, of the larger trends. And, and I just want to add one thing uh, to that, that uh, as you we were saying, foreign capital left the region and uh, this oligarchization happened. But there is also uh, another trend uh, that has been visible. Uh, so political interference in the region has always been part and parcel uh, of the media market. This is nothing new. Um, and uh, and an important uh, reason behind that is that uh, political parties, um, it, it is rooted in the transitions because political parties are uh, are poorly embedded in society. Um, they have few members they are not so active so these parties, in a sense they were somewhat forced um, well forced to capture the state instead and abuse state resources or capture the media and uh, and that 's what uh, some uh, experts call the colonization of the media by parties um, so you know they try to shape the, the legal context, uh, the institutional framework, in a way to benefit their party and to benefit their own own uh, cadre. Um, and of course, Hungary is uh, is no exception to this. Uh, the case with Hungary is that it is probably at the further end of a uh, a very worrisome trend right now. Uh, a trend that some other countries, because of these underlying um, vulnerabilities. Um, can also start on, as we have seen in uh, in uh, there were some signs in Poland, uh, because in the case of Hungary we have a strong leader who can uh, exploit these vulnerabilities, and I think um, one important thing about Hungary is that a few years ago we were very much focused on the legal framework, and I remember five year, around five years ago when the media laws were passed, uh, we had lengthy discussions about the media authority and its powers, how it will use it, um, the changes to the laws. And I think we sort of uh, forgot to pay attention to the the changes that have been happening uh, underground, Uh, the the so-called harnessing of uh, the market by political forces. Um, So essentially, uh, political forces have reshaped the market. The government uh, has... There has been a stealth, slow takeover by oligarchs, businessmen, other people, interests close to the government in some connection with the government. And I think uh, we fail to see these changes gradually happening. And I think that Nip Sobatschak was just uh, one other step in, 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 in that trend. Uh, and of course, Nip case cases might be somewhat new uh, because this already happened in 2014, uh, when another uh, online portal, Origo, uh, wrote about the lavish expenses of uh, Minister X. And uh, after that, the, the, the editor-in-chief was shortly fired, and uh, the newsroom resigned. And eventually, it was uh, sold to um, interests which we can say are somewhat aligned with the government. Uh, and Nebsovacek's case uh, is uh, is... Is another um, step in this direction, unfortunately, and I and I don't see quick fixes because of uh, because of these underlying vulnerabilities, because of what we have been talking about. Uh, because as long as there is no, there is not enough uh, money, there is not enough funding. It will be these trends will be very hard to tackle. Can yes, I
2: Of course, this is actually. A, a A great thought. There's not enough funding, there's not enough money. And so we've been talking about the problems so far and the trends, but what could be the solution? I actually think that you're looking at, and I've advocated for this idea for a while, so bear with me. Um, One is we have to take a regional approach, actually except for Russia and Ukraine and the Russian speaking actually periphery. Some of these markets are very fragmented, are very small. So you have to create sort of regional markets where investment is made on a regional basis so that there's possibility for higher margins, one. Two, uh, there are some great efforts going on right now as we speak, actually, to develop investigative reporting networks in this space. You have the Bern-Balkan Investigative Reporting Network, quite successful. And the OCCRP project, actually, that focuses more specifically on Eastern Europe. We need to expand these networks. We need to create additional networks. And more importantly, we need, using this regional approach, need to create markets for their products. Because unless their products are sold, these entities will not be sustainable. And third, and I think very important, we have to take a long, haul approach to changing the face of ownership in Eastern Europe and in Central Europe. Uh, This is not a two-decade effort. This is not a three-decade effort. This is a longer effort. There are some other areas of life where we've done this successfully. West's interventions and investments in the banking sector have radically improved the banking sector, and it is kind of sustainable and well-functioning in this space. We need a similar approach. Perhaps through the creation of a media development fund that takes a long haul approach to creating regional markets and new ownership structures and then infuses them with structures and mechanisms for enforcing editorial control and independence. And last but not least, I think we have a lot of potential in the new and social media, actually, as as an entity for being, as a mechanism rather, for being disruptive in the old ownership landscape and creating new institutions of ownership and new spaces for quality information uh, jill uh, what do
0: you think about potential of new media social media actually um, for countries like belarus russia ukraine uh, in time of important events like maidan protests, new media there was only one platform once in independent free space where people can coordinate when spread their ideas could new media be the solution and you know, all to this problem mentioned during our discussion.
1: Well, I think they're going to be part of it whether they're good or bad or indifferent. You know, it's that's they're here. So, what do you do with them? I agree that in the beginning, uh, going back a few years, they had very good influence on bringing people together, informing people of demonstrations, and you know, civically getting people involved in civic organizations, etc. But right now the the new media are um, you know, it's, it's a kind of a crazy world out there yeah. in terms of information. I mean, I think that this is probably the most disruptive in the bad sense of the term um, part of the media right now. It is virtually uncontrollable. Um, even in uh, democracies, you know, well-developed democracies like the United States and the election right now, you see the use of new media, disinformation, confusion. Alexander early on pointed out this kind of wall of information that, we, that is spewed by all sorts of uh, networks. I, I keep going back to something that came at the first panel, and it's coming up here again, that in some of the basic building blocks of democracy, Western-style democracy, we do not have education for our citizens in how they work. So it's so obvious. People, it was pointed out, Slovakia doesn't have, if this is correct, education in uh, history after World War II well of course then they don't understand communism they don't understand the fall of communism and it the same thing is happening in russia many of the most ardent supporters of putin are very young people who never went through the soviet union who do not remember uh you know the the things that stalin did and in fact he's a hero at this point in the West, in the United States. We have no real education for pe- for young people in what is capitalism. How does it work? How does money work? How do markets work? What is the system that we live in? So I think that you know ultimately, this is going to be a wake-up call for a lot of countries uh, in the West, in, um, let's say, Old Europe, New Europe, if we can use that term. and uh, and other places, that if we want this society, you know, liberal democracy to function, we have to know what it is. And we have to tell our young people and ourselves, what are the principles? Because there are studies out there, and I'm sure you both know about this, studies that show that in many countries, people prefer to stick with a lie, because it is easier to believe it Um, Sometimes there's, you know, comfortability with lies and this is statistically shown where people can be given information that is correct and they will reject it because it feels better, it is easier, whatever, to believe the comfortable lies.
0: Thank you, thank you, Jill. Uh, I know in Belarus every um, first-year school, (laughs) children, they are taken to Stalin line, its biggest museum, a prize in Stalin, you know, and where you can drink vodka for Stalin, Lenin, you know. And of course, in their heads, uh, the reality with history is mixed, you know. Minsk and Belarus is called as a communism with a taste of cappuccino, because on the main uh, avenue in the city, you can see McDonald's and Burger King, and in front of it Dzerzhinsky, Lenin (laughs) Monument, and KGB building, you know. And of course, in this mixed reality, People do not have any concrete values, and for them, it's very difficult to understand who they are, to which civilization they belong. But now it's um, time for your questions. Uh, Please raise your hand and um, um, name yourself and your affiliation. Uh, Please, you were first, this gentleman. Uh, Please, please, wait a second for microphone.
4: Thank you. Andras Luka transfers international Hungary. Uh, it seems that the games in uh, freedom of speech or freedom of press has changed trem- tremendously because the old game was uh, censorship. Now no one is talking about censorship. Everyone is talking about volume, about reach. <clears throat> uh, so the louder you say something, the more you say something, the more interesting way you say something, and the audience think it's truer. So there, there is a new game, and reach or entertainment can can be created by money. So in, in the end, I, I think this this is basically a competition uh, within political forces which are which are fueled by the way of money. So in, in, uh, under these circumstances, what what do you think is the short term possibility to counter Russian propaganda? Because. The long-term possibility might, might be better education, but that, that might take a generation. What, what, what is the short-term possibility for that? Uh,
0: yeah, uh, thank you for the question. I, I like questions about Russian propaganda, but um, Alex, yeah?
2: Well, I think it's a great question, actually. I totally agree that you know, uh, the game has changed. It's no longer about censorship. It's about reach, volume, mass production of multiple sources you know, of information. While at the same time driving an agenda, a well orchestrated design behind that agenda. So, what do you do about it? Actually, I think actually education deserves a bit more attention and funding because ultimately, actually, the investments now in education pay off. Actually, and there's literature out there that actually supports this theory. It's not simply theory, there's some data behind this. But short term, I th- see this area of critical information consumption skills sometimes called media literacy, sometimes mm-hmm. called critical thinking skills, actually, as, as one that has tremendous potential and one in which we need to invest, actually. So you're not dealing with necessarily children or youth, although you could. You can deal with adults and build up their critical information consumption skills. It goes a bit back to, to Jill's point about sometimes feeding information that is wrong to people and they nonetheless believe it or have a comfort zone with it that somehow makes it palatable. So these approaches address some of these issues and address some of these absences of skills and build skills to counter disinformation and propaganda. That's one. I think, actually, short-term solutions, there is no one magic bullet. There is not one solution. Uh, Have to also consider things such as investments and more attention to rather credible and well-skilled citizen reporters, actually, that produce alternative points of view that are ground truth that basically relate directly to the reality of life for people who, who, who live through these stories. And then additional investments in investigative reporting. And this is the creation of regional markets for their products, actually. We have seen some fantastic stories come out of Eastern Europe and Central Europe from existing investigative reporting networks. We need more of them. They are the real stories. And people actually have hunger for them and consume them. Uh, and they have the potential to basically build up the, the, the democracy, residual of values that we badly need at this time in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. I think these are some preliminary thoughts. Uh, Jeky, Jill, Mm -hmm. do you want
1: to answer? I I think those are all really interesting ideas. I think they're very smart. You know, I, I tend to look at kind of trends a lot. And just standing back, one of the real challenges is that if you go back to the Soviet days, There was an ideology, you know, communism, uh, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. And there was a a concrete idea which Russia, the Soviet Union, was trying to propagandize. There was a message. And it's quite obvious right now that Russia really doesn't have a message, and that's what makes it kind of complicated. The message is really, it's not a cohesive ideology. It's not Marxism-Leninism. And it's not really a cohesive, we are better or we have better ideas that will function. It's really knocking down and uh, undermining the liberal democracy in the West. So it, it does change, I think, the equation in how you really answer this. Because it's very referenced to the failings of Western society, rather than the advantages of, uh, of the East, of Communism. So uh, that, I don't think we fully quite grasp how to deal with that, because it brings us back to ourselves a lot. And unfortunately, that's where you get into all sorts of confusion <laughs> about how you improve things. Yeah,
3: just a, just a quick point uh, that I very much agree with uh, with what you have said so far, and uh, and I think um, we have to stress that that as as citizen reporting and citizen reporters and reporting on local stories, reporting on stories that uh, that are relevant to people's lives uh, should be something that we we have to invest in. We have forgotten that and uh, and have focused on bigger projects, uh, but. People will only read and watch these stories if, if they are interesting to them. And, uh, and that human element has been missing to some extent, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, thank you. I, I, we are in Radio for Europe. We believe that um, the best short-term response to Russian propaganda is high-quality journalism. We launched recently 24-7 TV channel in the Russian language, and we improved our presence in social networks, new media of Radio Free Europe in different languages and local languages, which is very important to be closer to the societies. You know, Very important not just to speak them in Russian, because they understand Russian, but to let them understand that we speak their language, Ukrainian, Belarusian. And it works very well, because Russian trolls and propagandists, they're useless in making discussions and in trolling in Ukrainian or Belarusians, because because they do not speak Ukrainian or Belarusians, and I, I'd like to add that uh, propaganda, Russian propaganda, is very postmodernistic, in sense that they they do not have concrete message. But their task is to destroy, you know, traditional order, to uh, devaluate uh, traditional democratic institutions, you know, to say that oh, this European Parliament they do not decide anything. Look at American elections, you know, we just like entertaining, entertaining show. They're just giving these messages to show that everywhere is a mess. So don't worry about the mess in Russia. It's okay, but everywhere is the mess. Okay. So next question, please. Yeah. Oh, oh my, oh, maybe there was a hand from the beginning there, this gentleman uh, in a red tie. No, yes. Uh,
5: thank you. Steven Stoltenberg. I work at the State Department. I'm an analyst there who follows uh, mostly Poland and the Baltic states. I just got back from Warsaw, and in conversations I had there, I uh, came upon some very disturbing information about the ways in which media freedoms are being undermined in Poland, at least allegations to that effect. Um, and I thought I would mention a couple of examples to put this on people's radar, and then ask the panelists if, uh, how they would define, uh, or what, what, where are the red lines in terms of uh, uh, evidence that a government is actually undermining media freedoms in, in its own country. So what I heard in Warsaw was, for example, um, well we all know, I think, or most of us know, that um, uh, the government in Poland passed a new public media law, um but i'm curious how the panelists would define a situation where the government is actually exerting so much control over public media that we would consider that a threat to media freedom and then the, with regards to private media i heard that the government uh, again an allegation the government has directed state owned enterprises to withdraw their advertising from certain private media outlets and this is resulted in considerable loss of advertising revenue, and now some of those outlets are considering layoffs, closing down uh, regional offices. Uh, So this is just another example. Uh, So I think we need to be very attentive to the various ways, uh, various instruments that governments may have at their disposal to undermine media freedoms. But I'm curious whether these examples from Poland ring a bell, whether uh, they, they sound familiar to you from other examples. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Uh, do you want to respond? Sure. Uh, I think it's a very interesting question. It's a disturbing question. We at IREX implement this protocol called Media Sustainability Index, and it covers pretty much all of the countries of Central and Eastern Europe, including Russia. Unfortunately, we're not doing it for Poland, because you know, the assumption of a number of years ago was that actually Poland and the countries of Central and Eastern Europe that made it into the EU have turned the page. They are on a democratic path, and there is stability, and the democratic gains are irreversible. That does not seem to be necessarily the case. Actually, many people are expressing doubts about the foothold of these uh, democratic gains in this part of, this, of the world. The, the Media Sustainability Index uses an interesting prism to actually measure media, the health of the media sector. So we look at, the first, the legally enabling environment. And that's one category. Second, the, the, the quality of the profession, the journalists themselves. Third, the, the associated uh, supporting institutions Fourth, the multiplicity of views, the plurality of views that produce news in a country. And, and fifth, media as a business, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's a few red flags, and these objectives are divided into sub objectives. It's a complex tool, actually. I encourage you to take a look at it. It's online on our website. Uh, but some of the red flags that basically really are disturbing to media professionals, as well as as those who care for media and free information and quality information, are excessive use of licensing by governments to dictate an agenda. That's one. If you know that you go through 10 hoops to get a simple license, actually, of whatever nature that is actually, that shows some intent to restrict or make it difficult for independent media to operate professionally. One. Two, the use of state aid for political purposes, whether that's subsidies in the form of advertising or other state aids, including exemptions from VAT, value added tax in Europe, for political purposes. And then the more f- finer and I think a bit more sophisticated tools that we use are. We use a thing called the media content analysis tool, whereby we actually take a look at, take a look at, at content produced over a period of time for things such as uh, multiplicity of views, uh, verification of facts, whether there is more than one point of view, and whether it comes across as credible, and whether it meets standards of independent and journalistic uh, professionalism. And so, if you put content through this tool, typically you come away with some good indication of whether you know, the government is imposing a line on its public media or not. And you can use it specifically for the public media. So these are the, some of the few red lines that you're looking for. Uh, J.K.? Um, yeah,
3: yeah JK. Just, just about uh, public media. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, we have to say that public media in Central Europe has always been uh, politicized and uh, has always had a pro-government bent in most of these countries. But of With course, there have been yes, there have been significant differences. And what we have seen in Poland is that the current government is uh, is is more hostile is more hostile, and the um, the measures that they have taken so far are very worrisome for us. Um, and uh, And of course, the parallels are there with Hungary uh, where it also started with legal changes. Um, And in Poland as well, they are focusing on ownership. To some extent, there is a lot of hostility um, uh, towards German owners. Um, A lot of talk for now. Um, And I think uh, you asked about red lines. Uh, I I think um, um, there will be two sort of um, Test cases to see where this will lead. Uh, one is that there was a law, uh, a media law, a draft law in parliament uh, in the spring. Uh, as far as I know, that's uh, that's stalled right now. Um, but that was uh, that contained um, provisions which are highly problematic about um, how patriotic the media has to be and so on. So we have to see what happens to that law. And then the other thing is. Uh, Uh, is more of a test for the European Union, in a sense that right now um, uh, they have this um, um, rule of law procedure against Poland, not in the case of the media, but uh, in the judiciary. Uh, And I think uh, the deadline for that is coming up at the the end of October. uh, And this is a completely new process. Uh, So I think we will have to see what happens in that case, how the government reacts, uh, whether the government is willing to step back. Um, So yeah, I, I think we will know more soon.
0: Thank you. Uh, Please, more questions? Uh, Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
6: OK, I'll I'll ask a question. Uh, Tim Nelson, State Department. Uh, Curious question on uh, media funding
0: um, uh, for propaganda purposes uh, in Russia, the importance of it
6: um, is that uh, most of it is being funded by Western businesses uh, through tr- through advertising. It's the larger market. Um, is there any role uh, that you can see in defunding uh, the major
0: uh, Russian propaganda sources? Can you give example? Uh... Okay. Um, I would say probably 60 to 80% of, of funding is Western businesses coming into
6: Russia uh, to fund uh, Uh, any of the major propaganda channels. Um,
2: You know, this is actually, as I said initially, uh, it's a difficult question, it's a good question actually. I'm not quite sure actually of of the data that you reference, whether that's indeed the case. And I think actually there is substantial local indigenous advertising markets in Russia to to the extent that I know. Uh, but, But assuming that that is indeed correct actually, it's, it's very challenging, actually, because as, as Jill said, actually, Russia sometimes uses the tools that, you know, we routinely employ here for business development purposes, for growth, the, the, the essential tools of capitalism to distort the very nature of media. And so it, it's a challenge. I think long-term, uh, the solution has to come from taking a fresh look at the advertising markets, like the traditional advertising markets. And they're all in, in propping up media, media organizations. This is very much an ongoing discourse in the United States, actually. This is a shifting landscape here, actually. The print media that used to be pretty much rely on advertising, actually, um, is under threat, is under duress. Advertising has gone elsewhere, to websites, social media, TV. In the TV it has remained strong, actually. So the question is, how do you reorient the advertising market now in Russia uh, to not nefarious purposes, to good purposes. And how do you discourage funding in advertising market by foreign investors that may be perhaps unwittingly used by Kremlin for its own propaganda designs? Um, I think the social media, new media, in my view, has a lot of potential here. And some of the ideas that have been circulated, and I think have a lot of promise and merit some deep thought, are sort of social impact investment models you have out there in the world a lot of independent, quite wealthy, large asset holders, including the pension funds or including the sovereign wealth management funds, who have a specific stated interest in the absence of volatility. They associate volatility with the absence of good governance. And good governance has a direct link with the quality of information. So the quality of information is one of the lifebloods of democracy. If you invest in good information, you're investing in democracy. You're investing in non-volatility, the absence of volatility. Maybe there is a way to capture some of their investment strategies and orient them towards non-advertisement based models of supporting media and good messages, not only in Russia, but elsewhere. And frankly, the mass of this wealth, the mass of this asset, it's such that they will have sway if they choose to do this. And Jill, maybe you
1: want to You know, I, I'm not quite sure, um, uh, again, of those uh, figures. I, I don't really have a concrete idea about this. I know the government does subsidize, there's no question, pours a lot of money into the media. With uh, the cutbacks and um, uh, sanctions, they have less money to, to put into it. But I think advertising is one of the key issues. I'll leave it. I think Alexander explained it well. I'm not an expert on that area.
0: Um, uh, I will add my few words. Um, you know, when we are trying to campaign, you know, to stop these Russian trolls and the Russian presence, we had a very, very big uh, troubles with administrations of um, social networks um, uh, managed from Russia. Because Twitter, Facebook, of course, Contacts, Instagram, they have their offices, usually controlled, usually based in Moscow. And any tries, for example, to unblock activists from Ukraine, uh, they were unsuccessful. Because Moscow offices, even of Facebook or Google, very often they supported uh, pro-Russian activists and pro-Russian, let's say, propaganda there. OK, uh, please, more uh, the question there, this gentleman. Yeah, also with the red tie.
6: Uh, hello, my name is Learson. I'm independently affiliated. Um, I have a question about. Um, Well, media from a U.S. policy perspective, uh, I'd like to bring up an example. There's a web portal I followed for a long time. It was called sctimes.org, Southeast European Times, and it was mostly um, journalists in the Balkans uh, working uh, for this uh, portal, which was, by the way, uh, uh, funded by the Department of Defense here. And it was... um, I thought it was very good, very honest reporting on situations of transi- transitional justice, corruption, and other political issues in the Balkans. And it had a very wide following, I think, on Facebook. It had half a million followers. Um, I'd estimate, I-, I wouldn't be surprised if it had up to a million people reading it, maybe not in a day, but over a month. Uh, but, and I think some, some, a few years ago, all of a sudden the site was shut down because the DOD pulled the funding. Um, And almost simultaneously, you have uh, the Russians coming in with their propaganda narratives through RT, Sputnik, and other sources, and they're pushing their own propaganda uh, while in the meantime, we are sort of disengaging in the region uh, from a media perspective. So my question is, um, how do we get US policymakers, or how do we convince them to sort of reengage with the region, to sort of combat this uh, this propaganda narratives that are being put out, uh, which are, you know, as as you guys are alluding to, it's mostly disinformation, uh, and it's destabilizing in a sense. Um, and I know most of your focus is on the local efforts, but I'm asking from a U.S. policy perspective. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh-huh. Well, do
1: you know, just jump in briefly, because d- that's been a big debate for quite a long time. And I think one of the problems is the technology and the way the media work right now makes it extremely difficult to figure this out. I've been at so many different conferences where that question is asked, what does the West do? What does the United yep. States do to answer? And usually it falls into old think of, um, you know, should we give more money to VOA? Should we give more money to RFERL? How do we, should we answer them? Should we, usually they don't say lie, but it's usually put out as they can lie, we can't, therefore we're at a disadvantage. And I don't think right now there's really creative, I'm intrigued by some of the things that both the other guests are talking about in terms of, you know, looking at the media landscape the way it is, not the way it was, you know, 25 years ago, or even 30 years ago, and, um, and trying to figure out different ways of getting um, citizens educated to consume, I, I do keep going back to that. People are not, they're, they're not cut off anymore. If you're in Moscow or you're in any of these countries, you're probably able to get almost all the information you want. It's a question of, there's too much information. Yeah. so And you're buried in it. And then there's disinformation, as we've been saying. And then there are wacky conspiracy theories. And I know, I did a study in the Baltics, in Estonia, um, with a, a co-researcher, and we looked at precisely that, the influence of Russian media on yeah, um, Russian-speaking Estonians. And so many of them, especially the 17-year-old said, um, I said, who do, you, who do you read? How do you get your information? Most of them were getting it from the web. And then my second question, of course, was, who do you believe? And usually the answer was, we don't really believe anyone, yeah. because everybody lies. The West lies, the Estonian government lies, the Russians lie. And this one young person said, I call, when I try to figure out what's happening in Ukraine, I call my grandmother, who lives in Ukraine. <laughs> i 'm serious, you know so um, this is this is one of the problems. There is a great um, lack of belief in the media, and also because people are so inundated with information, they throw up their hands and say i can 't handle it it 's too much i 'm tuning out and that is very useful to Russian propaganda because the the citizens who are um, disenfranchised or encouraged just to kind of tune out, it, that works in their favor as well.
2: Thanks. Um, we can spend an entire day talking about the walls of U.S. policy for promoting independent media and the pressures facing the U.S. budgets. But but clearly it's associated with a shrinkage of the budgets that typically fund good governance, democracy promotion, including media. So. This has been a downward trend for a number of years. Uh, And it's a worsened trend. And it actually sort of points to the fact that we can't just look at short-term security risks and fund their solutions. It's time that we actually take a look at these long-term issues, including media and critical information flows. And you can't really exit the playing field when it comes to these issues. You have to stay engaged. And you have to remain there as a player. There is some interesting legislation right now on the Hill, actually. And I think it's a a good step in the right direction. It's by Senator Rob Portman of Ohio and Senator Chris Murphy. They have proposed, actually, establishment of a whole of government approach associated with the center and some funding that should promote independent media, should focus on investigative journalists, and efforts to counter propaganda and disinformation. So it's a good step in the right direction. There isn't a lot of funding associated with it, but if it happens, it's gonna be something positive. And maybe one step that starts changing the tide of this absence of funding and attention. Actually,
0: we are out of time, I'm so sorry. Uh, Maybe final remarks of our participant, Jakey.
3: Maybe, I mean, I just wanted to add one more thing about uh, uh, citizen engagement, that I think when we talk about uh, online media, um, there is also this trend, especially among young people in the region, that not not just that they are disengaged because there is just so much information, but that they are disengaged because they think that the truth will just emanate from the internet. And so they don't really have a, have an understanding that they will also have to have a stake in it because those owners although the barriers for entering the market are surely lower but those owners will have to take political risks and if they want to do investigative pieces they need money and yep. and they need yeah citizen engagement
2: Thank you
0: Alex Jill do you want to say something Okay so
2: No, thank you for your attention and the great questions. This is an important discussion to all of us, clearly. So thank you for being part of this.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, We have a break now.